Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hello, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, our guest is Dr. Veena Ranganath. She is at UCLA as a clinical professor within the Department of Medicine and Computational Medicine and Division of Rheumatology. She is the co-director of the UCLA Master of Science in Clinical Research and the director of the Rheumatology Fellowship Musculoskeletal Ultrasound Training Program. In addition to being an adult rheumatologist, she's a clinical researcher with a focus on rheumatoid arthritis and imaging and has a strong interest in conducting research studies that are pertinent to the rheumatologic patient. And in particular, what we're gonna discuss today is her interest in uh, using pharmacological cannabis for managing spondyloarthritis. Uh, and we'll talk about some other things too. Dr. Ranganath, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So this is an interesting hot topic. I feel like it's become more mainstream than a few years ago. Um, and I'm curious, I guess the first question is, right, we think of cannabis, we think of pot. Um, what is the diff, what is pharmacological cannabis mean? So that's a great question. Um, I think pharmacologic cannabis can mean different things to different patients. And I guess then we have to take a step back on how people actually use cannabis. Um, did you know that there are more than 110 different terms for cannabis that we've generated over the years? And you know, I uh, I just this morning on the way in was listening to the the good old song "Ooh That Smell," where that it's like, and I didn't I, I never knew till this morning what that song was about, <laughs> but I believe it that we have generated that much. I'd love to see a, like a, a, a pictogram of that. I'm sure that there is a list online of all the different terms that we use. And interestingly, we've, as humans, been using cannabis for so long. Since the early, you know, like 20, you know, 27, 37 BC is probably the first time on a drawing in a cave that they had a picture of cannabis. Um, and there was a 2400 BC Siberian ice mummy that was had breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer, and actually had cannabis in a satchel buried with her. In addition, like Queen Victoria was using it um, for her menstrual cramps. So we've been using cannabis for a really, really long time. And um, no wonder we've developed so many different terms of, yeah. of how of um, that gives us information on how we utilize it. I mean, now, like if you're taking, you can talk about gummies when back then, probably yeah. you know the idea what that was. So, um, and it's been used for medicinal purposes all along. Um, so when we think about the cannabis plant and its medicinal use, we have to think about what are the chemical properties of cannabis, um, the plant. And um, the most abundant chemicals um, to our knowledge are 
CBD, which is cannabidiol, and THC. And when we think about CBD, um, cannabidiol, both of these chemicals were actually discovered in the 1960s. Um, and many of us are familiar with some of the um, perhaps memes that are out there in the internet of how there are certain types of plants that are the more mellow plants and the other plants that are that give you more of that high. Right. Um, and they probably have differing amounts of CBD and THC because THC has been associated with getting that high and CBD um, has been associated with having more of a calming effect. Okay, so that's really the difference between those two and how they work in our body. Uh, so the, do they both provide pain relief? So that's a great question and I don't think we know the answer to it. Um, I, there is significant amount of research that needs to be done. We do know that there are receptors on our multiple cells in our body. Um, the better data is with THC. There are receptors on neurons in your brain um, and the nerves. So we do know THC affects this, this uh, particular receptor and perhaps is the reason why we get that high. CBD is a little bit more tricky because we're not 100% sure what the mechanism of action is. However, we do believe um, that, and with these receptors, they are also on the immune system cells. So they're apparent there too. So we do know that it affects uh, the immune system as well. That's really interesting. And right 20, 50 years ago, we didn't realize there were like nicotine receptors, right? That were bonding or heroin, right? Heroin has its own receptor. And if you can, right, I know like Narcan, if you give someone Narcan to clear, right. clears their receptors and okay. So very similar, interesting. Um, so and this is what our body is actually generated. So the, right. we know that we have these receptors because we have certain hormones in our body that activate these receptors independent of the cannabis. I mean, right, right, right. right. So, so there, just like what you were saying with the nicotine and heroin, like other, other. Yeah, and I'm gonna, if we have time, I wanna come back to it because there are some, aren't there some foods that do similar as like CBD that we know of? Not like soy or something. Okay, that's it's another episode. I may not be. Uh, yes, we need another episode with a different <laughs> specialist. I'm going to do some research, some agricultural research. Um, so one of the questions I think is really important to ask, um, and I'd love your input on it, um, around risk or side effects with using it. And right. the one thing that I, I, I have thought about a lot over the last few years, um, and I say this coming from a background in some agriculture work I did um, in my career, was uh, Penn State published a piece of research in 21 that talked about many cannabis strains are used to remediate soil. So hmm. for the listeners, right, so this means you plant the cannabis plant, 
they have like really unique characteristics, long stems, they grow fast, uh, but they also absorb nutrients and or contaminants in soil. Uh, and I'm not a, like, I, I think this is something that's to me is really important to talk to people about. Cause I, when I first heard this a couple of years ago, what happened? So the, so what this piece of research from Penn state talked about was it absorbs, right. It can absorb nutrients and heavy metals. And then it, those, uh, nutrients or me the metals tend to travel up the stalk and out. Uh, and they travel up to the trichomes, which are like where the CBD oil is at in the plant. Uh, and this to me begs the question of, it, it begs a lot of questions in my mind, but it's also, uh, we won't even get into like regulation because there's a whole like another, that's a whole like, that's a whole podcast in itself. Um, but are people using, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, so if you're taking something to reduce inflammation or help with chronic disease, and there is, if it's grown in soil and it's not regulated, there is a potential risk that someone with MS or spondylitis or rheumatoid is actually putting contaminants back into their body that could harm them. So, and I, my question really is around from a, an awareness standpoint for people who are using cannabis, like if that's the case, do we want to focus on hydroponic products, products not grown in soils? Because the last thing I think anyone would want to do is harm themselves further. Right. I mean, if you're thinking about environmental pollution and such, I, I, I'm not aware of all the data surrounding that, but I could understand how that could be a potential concern. Um, also, how are you keeping, I mean, are you organically doing it or using pesticides? How are you right. growing your own plant? Um, another thing to consider is many of our autoimmune patients are on immunosuppressive medications and are there potential fungi or contaminants from microbial purpose, you know, microbials right. that could, because you're immunosuppressed that you could um, inadvertently be ingesting. Um, yeah. Like none so, of this is right. The, like heavy metals and my, microbial microbes are right. They're not allowed in our food. Right. And there's right. this weird, uh, and again, I think more, way more research needs to be done on some of these topics right. in general. So we right. understand it because I don't, I don't think anyone's intent is that anyone, we want to use it as a drug, right. As something or food, maybe depending on who you are. Um, because there are several different ways that you can take it. Right. So, and, um, there are specific, um, you know, there are pharmaceutical companies out there that have done all the purification studies to be able to determine the safety of their product. Um, however, it's not always clear if you're going to your local dispensary as to how, what, what that particular product is, or, you know, and, and you want to ensure, okay, is this a 
uh, certified or a, um, a, a dispensary that is above board or, or um, and where are they getting their product? Because also the product can vary from one dispensary to another, even though it may have the same brand name on it potentially. So there are a lot of different things that we have to um, investigate and do more research on from a regulatory standpoint, as well as investigative in how it helps pain. Does it affect pain? Does it improve inflammation? Does it improve the underlying disease? Does it improve um, sleep? And then improves pain? Because yeah. we do know if you don't get a good night's sleep, then you're going to be in a lot of pain the next day, which may trigger a flare potentially, right? Um, in addition, how does it affect your anxiety levels and your stress levels as well? So there are a lot of things that we need to better understand about um, how cannabis affects us. And one thing I did fail to mention is, yes, we've got... Um, CBD and THC, but there are also so many other components um, and other chemicals within the plant, um, more than 110 um, cannabinoids have been identified within that plant. So when you were talking about oils, um, there are like terpenes and flavonoids and other compounds that now are being more investigated and perhaps some of your listeners may be more familiar with some of these other terms and other compounds um, that may end up being in the aroma of the plant or in the oils of the plant as well. Yeah. Um, I remember my daughter came home with a an article in like sixth grade and I wish I'd kept it because it discussed all of this in like really plain language. Um, yes. So, and, and again, like I'm not... Uh, I'm not pro or anti cannabis, uh, and I. Th but I think a lot of people there's a lot to think about, just like there is, right? I, because I also have heard people say, "I don't want to take a biologic because it's not safe." And right. honestly, I think for the most part, biologics are generally safe. We know now, and maybe cannabis is too. But the re right the the research yeah. is the one thing we're missing. Um, so I guess my my statement here is everyone should evaluate for themselves and decide what's best for them. Um, in terms of like legal ethical concerns, it's mostly legal in most states. Yes. I think we've hit like 38 or more. So from when I last looked, and this is data from 2021. So um, I think 18 states are approved for recreational use. Okay. Um, 36 states are medicinal. Um, perhaps 50 states are approved to be able to use CBD. And I mean, there are laws within each one of the states that you'd have to investigate in your own state, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Um, and because I can tell you in California, at least as of 2021, when I looked, um, you can possess on your person maybe up to an ounce of cannabis, uh, 
and you can only cultivate six plants. So there may be a certain number of plants that you're able to cultivate and, um, and you know, you need to know when or if your state has approved for recreational cannabis, if they've approved for medical cannabis. So um, there are a lot of st uh, legal implications based on the state that you live in. So best practice, find out your state regulations. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, do we know anything about drug interactions in cannabis or is it is it not looked at? So that's a really great question. And um, so with CBD specifically, there are potential drug-drug interactions and potential implications for liver function test abnormalities as well. Um, when I was writing my the grant and I wrote a grant and I was able to competitively apply for and given money from UC San Diego um, and the CMCR was the one that gave us the money um, to be able to conduct the first of its kind double blind placebo controlled trial using CBD in rheumatoid arthritis patients. Um, I have to do a lot of work in looking for the safety implications uh, with, with cannabis um, and CBD specifically. And so with CBD in our consent forms, um, which I just educated a couple of patients on this morning, um, there are certain um, enzyme inducers and inhibitors that we have to be potentially aware of. Before I put anybody into one of our studies, then I take all of their medications and look through um, our website for drug-drug interactions to evaluate whether or not it would be safe to give this patient the doses of CBD that we're giving. We don't even know what the dose effects are. So, um, so when I, I tell my patients that if you are gonna be using cannabis, that um, I need to know so that I can look to see if there are any drug-drug um, interactions or implications. Um, when looking at CBD itself though, um, taking aside the drug-drug interactions, um, we, and uh, let me take a step back. You know, CBD can make you a little drowsy. So we do know that um, if you take large amounts of CBD, it may make you drowsy. So think about other medications that make you drowsy. For example, gabapentin, if you're taking that. Um, if you're taking any other medications that suppress the, the CNS um, and your ability to, to breathe, right? Because you don't want to take a bunch of drugs before you go to bed and then you're not able to breathe well at night. Um, so like muscle relaxants or um, um, anti-anxiolytics or anything that's going to suppress the CNS from being able to instigate that breath. So was, did you say anti-anxiolytic? So anti-anxiety yeah. medication? Okay. Yeah. I, just, for, I want to make sure people caught that. 
Yes. Any medications are going to really suppress your um, or make you sleepy. Right. Um, alcohol. Like yeah. probably it's not a good idea to drink a bunch of alcohol and take CBD. Um, that's probably not a good idea. Um, uh, you know, benzodiazepines to like Valium or things like that um, or Ativan can make you really sleepy. Um, so keep that in consideration when you're thinking about starting any cannabis related products. Uh, so typically, um, you know, having that sleepiness, sometimes you can see headaches. Another thing that you can see is GI or gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, for example, diarrhea or some abdominal pain. Those may be some of the side effects with CBD alone. So that one's an interesting one. And it's, well, one, I imagine you might see it because maybe there's something microbial in your CBD oil, or maybe it's just the properties. Um, and this is not right on, this is my, uh, I'm just playing a doctor on Spondycast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I think about that, but I also think about my experience with CBD was I bought those really expensive drops and would put them under my tongue or take the CBD, whatever, and nothing was working. And then one day I was like, I am on fire. All my joints are on fire, massive flare. And before I pulled the like rip cord and called to get a dose pack of Medrol, I popped into my local CBD store and said, Hey, what do you, you know, this, like I've been taking this stuff for months. Cause some of it, I think has to build in mm -hmm. your system. And she said, try the, try the patch. Mm. And I was like 10 bucks for a little patch. Right. <laughs> and I went home, took a hot bath, popped that thing on. And I was like new the next morning. And I thought, Oh, that's weird. That can't be. And next time I hit a flare, I was like, okay, let's get it. But compared to, two or three months of taking drops every day. And then I was able, so is it possible that there's like a, a microbiome thing going on with CBD too, like at absorption? So that's a great question is the bioavailability, right? So if you smoke cannabis or CBD, you're gonna get that instant um, impact, right? It's probably going to be a high impact, and then it's going to taper off pretty slowly over, I mean, quickly over time. Now, you'll have variable response potentially based upon if you're eating it or using a tincture, um, there may be more of a variable, especially if you're eating the cannabis, because we don't know how you're digesting it. Did you eat it with a very high fatty meal? Because we know that a high fat meal allows for better absorption of cannabis. Oh, interesting. So like um, of CBD, you get a better absorption that way. That's why um, people eat brownies with, <laughs> with cannabis in them. Yeah, a lot of butter, right? A lot of oil or butter. Um, so you're getting um, better absorption that way um, versus potentially taking a capsule. And that's why the capsules, um, you'll see oil. And so with the oil, I don't know if it's the oil that caused the patients to have diarrhea or not. We haven't done the analysis of our study. Um, and so I think um, there are different properties that could be causing the di potential um, diarrhea or abdominal pain. Okay. 
comfort. So um, I think a lot more research needs to be done. And also like how are things absorbed, uh, whether you're smoking a blunt or a joint or uh, now they're, and this is what I've told my children to be aware of is, um, is they've created these methods to be able to get really high levels of THC into your system that I told my, my children, don't you dare do that. Um, because um, the cannabis of today is much, much stronger with THC than the cannabis of yeah. the 1960s. Yeah, this is the dabs, right? You're talking about yeah. dabs. Yeah, and I, that freaks me out as a parent and as an individual because I know like I've taken the cannabis gummy a couple of times and you know, you take like a whole gummy and then you're flattened and that's just a gummy. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to eat a quarter at a time. And uh, to know that the concentration in there is, I don't know the multiple, but it's, it's pretty heavy. And, and I imagine, Okay, so I'm gonna go back to smoking for a second again, like just nicotine, but like it's probably like a vape, right? Where a vape is concentrated, you know, one cartridge of a vape that somebody would smoke in a day has four times the nicotine of a pack of cigarettes. And yeah. Right, and so you, and and not always when you buy things at the dispensaries, is it clearly indicated how much? It's confusing. Half a puff, is that really? You know how much are you actually getting into your system? Right. Um, it's it's really important, and it and I don't think the consumer knows exactly um, how much they're intaking. Um, and I think that's led to the rise and in, in young people actually going to the emergency room with use of cannabis because they didn't realize how much they took. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's not like right. We're in this space where I alluded to it at the beginning of the FDA hasn't made a call if this is a food or a drug. <laughs> so you know, and yeah, I'll just go political here for a second and say that it's probably going to be based on lobbying efforts over the next decade um, to see where it ends up and what the like what the research is showing for where the commercialization probably is. But the uh, so if it's not a food or a drug, you as a doctor really can't prescribe it, right? So you right. can't say, go to your dispensary, get a gummy. It should be five milligrams THC, five milligrams CBD, eat half of it, right? So like those things don't exist in the standards. Mm -hmm. And I, and I'd rather inform people about like the things that they're going to encounter that, and right. I think generally, again, like a biologic, it's probably most people's experience probably is not negative, um, but it's, there's a lot to be said there. So I guess in terms of any other best practices you think of? Yes. So um, I think the Canadians have actually done quite a bit more work in coming up with consensus and guidelines on use of medicinal cannabis and cannabinoids for chronic pain. And there was an article that came out in 2021 um, that 
provided some guidelines to clinicians on how to advise your patients and what are the do's and don'ts. So when you're doing therapeutic trials with cannabis, uh, we should really start with low doses, probably non-inhaled cannabidiol products and gradually increasing the dose depending on your clinical response and your tolerability. If you're gonna go down that route, um, I mean, you don't have to use cannabis, that's an option too. Um, but if you were to do it, then I would suggest going low and going slow. Um, you should also avoid driving or operating any heavy machinery um, while you're starting or changing the dose of your medicinal cannabis. And the Canadian position statement, um, they state that you should not be using cannabis if you're below the age of 25 because your brain is still developing and you don't yeah. want to impede any, any um, changes to the growth and expansion of your brain. So I've told my kids, no, not until the age of 35. <laughs> Give them a little bit more time to grow their brain. Um, and then people who have psychiatric illnesses should be doing it under the advisement of their psychiatrist. So if you have psychoses or suicidality, or if you already have a substance abuse disorder, probably picking up cannabis as treating your pain may not be the right move for you. Of course, if you're pregnant or considering breastfeeding, then we haven't done sufficient data, we haven't done sufficient research in those areas to state that this is safe. Um, so those are situations where it's pretty much contraindicated. And um, when you think about caution of use of cannabis, it's probably in the elderly, right? So if you're not able to, you don't have, um, good strength in your legs or a lot of pain that's impeding um, and you have a higher fall risk, it's probably not a good idea. If you have an unstable mental illness, if you've got heart disease or pulmonary hypertension or something, and if you're on a lot of other medications that really you know, makes you a lot more sleepy and um, what we call like a CNS depressant those are people that we should really consider perhaps not using cannabis. Right. And one acronym you've used a couple of times is CNS, which is central nervous system, right? Yes. Okay. yes. And it's for everybody who's listening. Um, it's those things that slow down your. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, this has been fascinating. I, this has been a really great conversation. I'm really grateful. Are you, uh, you're working on more research yourself, correct? Yes. That is I mean, I, I, the reason why I'm doing the research is because of my patients. And when my patients sit in, in our office and we're having a conversation and they ask me, hey doc, should I be using cannabis to treat my pain? Should I, how should I try it? What should I do? I don't really have the data to support how we're supposed to use it, when we're supposed to use it, and what it's going to treat. So um, i that's the reason why we were doing the research. We uh, published one paper uh, demonstrating that, you know, here at UCLA, if we've looked at all of our rheumatoid arthritis patients, um, 
during COVID, about 20% of our patients were using cannabis. I didn't get any more details, but I'm hoping to do more research. Um, the Canadians did do a study looking at a thousand rheumatology patients and, um, and then repeated it again, where they described the use of uh, cannabis in those patients. It's really interesting that many patients have used in the past, but don't use now either because of side effects or they didn't feel like it was really that effective. Huh. But we do need to do more research. And um, yes, um, I'm skeptical of everything, right? Just yeah. like the rest of the patients, I am skeptical. But if we have the data to support that cannabis does help the patient, um, I want to be there to be able to help my patient right. in explaining how it works and why it works and what way they should be using. But at this particular point, I cannot tell patients, go ahead and try um, without more data. Um, but if you were to try, as I said, go low with the dose and go slow, there are physicians probably in every single state who have um, taken a particular interest in cannabis I know here at UCL, um, here in Los Angeles, I can name two physicians, one's an ER doc, one's a rheumatologist, who helps the patient um, figure out what dose to use and how to use it to help their, their condition, yeah. whether it be you know, back pain or overall pain or fibro or um, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's interesting. You're, you're speaking my language about the data piece, like my day job is I, I run a little data company. And uh, and we we just this morning had like a very long conversation about the why, the what, the how related to what we do. But it is, it's all really important when you're thinking about, A, it can drive massive change, right? If we have the right data, it can drive positive change for a lot of lives. And it's important for people to understand those components and yeah, right? In data, we trust. <laughs> and we don't want to harm the patient, right? Our My goal is to be able to help the patient, whether or not you want to use biologics or not, whether or not, like, I am supposed to be there to give you all the tools necessary to make the best decision for yourself. Right. But if I don't have any information, how am I supposed to guide you? Right. I have to develop the data to be able to help the patient in front of me in every way possible. Yeah, and that the all of those choices or that you could put in front of a patient in terms of tools, they all have some sort of impact. And to be able to look at like, okay, well, this one is a much, right? You get an exponentially more positive impact with this tool than you do with this tool. Um, but the negative side, and it, yeah, it's a really, I love rheumatologists. You guys are like detectives. <laughs> Yes, I agree with that. And you have to really know lots of different things in order to be able to treat the patient. Yeah. That's why I never wanted to be a cardiologist or something where, you know, the algorithms are already there. I think that being a rheumatologist is a very special and important relationship that you can have with the patient. Well, um, really sorry. do. Please. <laughs> I will. I will land on that because before we even came on air, you and I were talking about 
uh, my rheumatologist came from the fellowship program that you run. Um, and I don't know if you were ever there together, but uh, yeah, these it's a very, very special thing. And we, as a patient, I'm grateful for the people who have chosen that path like you. Uh, it's a really, it is a unique, I think it's a unique specialty. And I've had a number of people over the years just say, what is a rheumatologist? I was like, they're detectives. Mm -hmm. uh, so on that note, let me ask you one final question. What about the future do you find most hopeful for people with SPA? I think we have a lot of non-pharmacological tools. I'm hoping for a place where we have pharmacological tools and other tools to be able to work in concert adjunctively to be able to help the patient. So mental health, um, stress, I think plays a huge role. Um, your diet, exercise, your weight also plays a role. And how do supplements, and if you put cannabis in that, that role too, like how do all of these things, and I'm not saying, I, I'm a believer in medications and Western medicine, but I have an open mind to think about others and how they can work together to be able to improve the lives of the spa patient. That's my story and I'm going to stick with it. Uh, well, thank you so very much. This was fantastic. It was so much fun, and uh, we look forward to having you again soon. Would love to. All right. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.